From points across California, you're listening to the Disneyland edition of the Diz Unplugged. And welcome to the Diz Unplugged Disneyland Edition, episode 370, for the week of November 13th, 2014. I'm Michael Bowling. This week, in my 60 Years of Disneyland series, I'm continuing my conversation with Don Ballard on the history of the Disneyland Hotel and the expansion of the hotel over the decades. Now, um, in your book, you chronicled um, how the hotel expanded when Disneyland expanded. So I wanted to take a closer look sort of at how the hotel expanded through the decades. So now a significant expansion for Disneyland in 1959 was the construction of the Matterhorn, the submarine voyage and the monorail, which prompted the introduction of the e-ticket. And then in June of 1961, the monorail was extended to the Disneyland Hotel. So what impact um, did this extension of the monorail have on the hotel? Well, you mentioned 1959. That was the first year that the hotel expanded. They went from um, eight garden structures to nine, with two more being built that were ready in 1960. So that increased it from 200 to about 335 rooms, and it, and it stood to reason. More people were going to Disneyland, more people were needing rooms. Um, so those were two years that they, they uh, you can ha- find a direct correlation to both expanding uh, for the same reasons, more people, more amenities at Disneyland, more amenities at the Disneyland Hotel. Um, and then the information that I got was that Walt Disney tried to interest the city of Los Angeles in a monorail system to, to move people around as kind of a mass transit kind of a system, and they weren't really interested in implementing that type of system at that time. So he next went to Jack Rather and said, how about it, Jack? Do you want to, uh, you know, let's see what we can put our heads together and see what we can find. So they decided um, in 1960, uh, and they announced it in late December, December 28, 1960, that they were going to expand the monorail to leave the park, um, go down Harbor Boulevard and cross the parking lot, cross over West Street, and enter the Disneyland Hotel station where they would build a, a monorail station there at the hotel. Jack and Walt absorbed the costs of this. They split it 50-50. Um, at the time, I think it was $2.9 million, uh, which was a s- significant amount of money at that time. Um, and it was the first uh, transportation of that kind across a, a thoroughfare, which was West Street, um, and it provided a new means for people to uh, enter and exit Disneyland to the hotel, another selling feature for the hotel. You had a direct connection where you didn't have to wait out in front in the lines for your tickets. You could buy them right there at the hotel, get on the monorail, and boom, you were in Tomorrowland. Um, and that, uh, that was a direct connection uh, that no other hotel could boast um, and another selling feature for the Disneyland Hotel. Mm-hmm. And contrary to what people believe, the monorail station is still in its original location. It has not moved. <laughs> it is in the exact same location. The station is at the exact same location as it always has been as far as the Disneyland Hotel was concerned. The hotel was torn away, but the, the track and the station is in the exact same spot. I have photographs. Um, at first, I didn't know whether they had just uh, kept up the track there and rebuilt and you know made it the design that it is today, uh, but I have pictures. They completely demolished it. It was completely leveled, and they completely rebuilt a whole new station in the exact, again, the exact same spot that it was then. It just doesn't have a hotel uh, destination anymore. It's downtown Disney destination. Right. Now, the Disneyland Hotel expanded rapidly um, from 1960 through 1969. So what were some of the the new features that hotels guests experienced during this decade? This enters the the dynamic years uh, for the Disneyland Hotel. And another interesting uh, thing that happened to me after the first book came out was 
one day I got another phone call from a gentleman named Alfred Nicholson. And Alfred Nicholson um, was the original architect of all the tower buildings at the Disneyland Hotel. At the time he called me, um, he was 92. He's 95, almost 96 now. He lives in Malibu. Um, and he called me and said, I'm Al Nicholson. I was with Weber and Nicholson, and we built all the towers at the Disneyland Hotel. And we had, I think, a two-and-a-half-hour phone conversation. And two weeks later, he drove up from Malibu and came and stayed the weekend with my wife and I, not to mention that he had a trunk full of artifacts, documents, photographs, um, blueprints, plans, rendering, sketches, you name it. And he let me copy everything. Um, wow. He also gave me several things that he had duplicates of, and it was, it was a gold mine. Um, but the most precious part of it was just sitting and talking with him all day. Um, and Al is an architect, and so when he talks, he has a sketch pad by his side. And so he was sketching out everything that he was telling me, how they designed rooms, how they designed the monorail track. And he would sketch them out, and he let me have all those sketches. I think I have 30 or 40 sketches that he did of things you know that he was talking about. I, in turn... Um, had a computer monitor hooked up, and I was showing him pictures from his time there. But he told me that they were building a, a tower condominium in Los Angeles called the Marie Antoinette Towers, and they had just had a construction trailer and a sign with a, a rendering of what that tower would look like. And it just so happened that Jack Rather was driving by that construction trailer, and he saw the picture of that tower, he turned around and went back in and said, what are you guys doing? And they said, we're building a tower. And he said, man, maybe I ought to build up instead of out. Because the original plans had it called for at least a dozen or 15 more two-story structures on the property, on the, on the 30 acres that they had. It was by driving by that trailer that day and meeting Nicholson and Weber um, that he got the idea to build towers. And he had them come down to his offices, and they did some rough sketches, and they had planned the first tower, which they started building in 1961, um, that added 150 more rooms. So we were up to four, a little over 450 rooms by 1962 when it opened at the beginning of summer of 1962. Um, and then in that same year, 61-62, that same two-year period, they opened the miniature golf course, the driving range, they had a 50-position driving range for golf, um, a golf building where you could buy clubs, balls, uh, cleats, shirts, pants, whatever you needed for golf. Um, and then they also opened an 18-hole golf course now where the, the pools are. That whole area was there was called uh, the uh, Disneyland Hotel Golf Course. It was an 18-hole golf course that... Uh, uh, you know, people could, could go play. They had sand traps and ponds and everything in there. Um, so that was open. Um, and the last feature that they built in that time frame was a heliport where they had helicopter service from LAX, round trip from uh, LAX, Los Angeles International Airport, to the Disneyland Hotel. I think it was $9 each way, $16 for a round trip. And they had over 20 flights a day, going to and from the hotel and the airport. Um, so that two-year period was really dynamic. Um, yeah, and boy, they, with the, today's traffic, don't you wish they still had that helicopter service? <laughs> well, they had two terrible tragedies. Uh, the, there were two helicopter crashes uh, in 1968, and so that led to them. Uh, they, they canceled the service for a while, and then it was operated by another airline um, until the early 70s. And then the neighborhood started complaining because more houses were built around there, that it was too noisy. Um, so it just, it just wasn't meant to be, not, not to mention the sadness of the helicopter crashes where everybody on board and a couple of people on the ground were, were lost. Hmm. So, uh, you know, that didn't help the cause, certainly any. Um, but, again, that was a, a dynamic, one of the most dynamic periods there. Um, and then... You can look at when the new Tomorrowland, you know, in 1967 opened. Well, they expanded the tower. Uh, they doubled the size of the first tower because, you know, more features in the new Tomorrowland, more features at the Disneyland Hotel. 
Um, they added the Marina Tower in 19, late 1969, early 1970, and then the Bonita Tower in 1978, and they were up to over 1,400 rooms by that time. Um, mm-hmm. It all coincided, you know. Um, I forgot what was at Disneyland. Was it Space Mountain in 78? It, um, it was around that time, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you can, you can pretty much pattern a major new feature at Disneyland with a major new feature within a year at the Disneyland Hotel. Mm-hmm. Um, and, for- and then certainly, certainly more innovation because they were the first hotel to use solar power, uh, the first hotel to accept credit cards, the first hotel um, to have a computerized reservation system. Um, just a lot of firsts at the Disneyland Hotel. Yeah, and for our younger listeners, the the original tower building that was the Sierra Tower is now the Adventure Tower, the Marina Tower is now the Fantasy Tower, and the Bonita Tower is now the um, Frontier Tower. So, and then, I and still, the, I, yeah, I still call them the the Marina, the Bonita, and the Sierra. Yeah. That's the only way I know them, but I know <laughs> what you mean. Yeah, they also built the Plaza Building at this time, correct? Where the ESPN yeah, that- zone is. Yeah, that was uh, 1966. They opened a new shopping complex. It was had kind of a subterranean floor that was a little bit down below where you would go down steps to uh, a re- Maisie's Pantry, the restaurant. They had Blum's, uh, which was a sandwich shop. They had clothing shops. Um, they had uh, um, also uh, they had offices in there for businesses. There was Coldwell Banker was in there, the real estate firm, um, a couple of other uh, radio stations were had their offices in there, and then the Disneyland Hotel staff had moved their offices to in there um, at that time in the Plaza Building mm-hmm. and Maisie's Pantry, and there was a toy shop in there. I remember also. <laughs> yeah, there was several toy shops. The original one was called Magic Land Toy Shop, um, and then I, I, I have pictures of the toy shops. That there was Bambi's, uh, one called Bambi's, and then. There was also a hobby shop or a hobby store in there that sold erector sets and models and, and things like that. So, again, there was a variety of things there. And they not only wanted Disneyland guests, but they wanted people from the surrounding community to come in and do their shopping as well. Now, on December fifteenth, 1966, Walt Disney passed away. Did his passing have an effect on the relationship between the Rather Corporation and the Walt Disney Company? Yes, they they did develop a relationship. I have several memos from Jack Rather to Walt and Roy Disney through the years in, in 1957, 58, early 60s, saying how, then they would write back and forth saying how pleased they were at this business relationship and how how fun it was for both of them and how they were looking forward to future developments and how you know, uh, Roy had written a, a memo to Jack saying we couldn't have picked a better partner in the hotel and, and you know, a better person to build the hotel. You certainly lived up to our expectations and then some. Um, and then there were, of course, correspondences after Walt's passing. Um, and it was interesting because Jack waited. Um, he waited till uh, late December. Walt passed on, you know, in mid-December. He he wrote to Roy and a couple of the Disneyland executives, Don Tatum, Card Walker, um, telling them how sad he was, that he didn't want to overwhelm them when Walt first passed away because he knew they must have been flooded with uh, with letters, you know, of grief and, and outpouring of sympathy. And he waited to, to tell them what Walt meant to them and, and how sad they were and uh, you know how if there was anything that they could do, and and uh, it was just it was just kind of really really sad to see you know that they they too felt a tremendous loss. The Rather Corporation felt a tremendous loss at Walt's passing, um, but then they also had the spirit of you know Walt wouldn't have wanted us to rest on our laurels or sit back. Let's keep moving. You know, uh, again that was right around the time when they were first talking about New Tomorrowland, and and Jack was excited about that and. And, uh, you know, they progressed on after that and made the best of a bad situation. You know, there was a tremendous amount of expansion at the Disneyland Hotel from in the 1970s. So you can mm-hmm. tell us a little about that, especially for a lot of the recreational um, activities there. 
Yeah, they, they not only expanded at the hotel, um, they increased the size of restaurants, they included an outdoor cafe or an outdoor veranda for a couple of the restaurants. Um, they added Restaurant Row, where they, I, I think there were four or five new restaurants that were, that were added, anywhere from upscale to, you know, buffet-type restaurants. Um, they had champagne brunches um, and, you know, all different varieties of food from American cuisine to Mexican food, Chinese food, um, anything that would pretty much cater to anybody's taste. They added nightclubs um, and uh, things on the grounds. But they also expanded out into uh, what they called uh, vacation land and tennis land, um, where they had an RV park where you could park your RV that was directly affiliated with the hotel. Um, and they had water and electricity hookups for your RV. They had a rec room there and a pool. Um, and they had a store there. And that accommodated a lot of guests that were traveling you know, in their RVs, like KOA campers and things like that. Um, and then they had tennis land because they'd never had the land to build tennis courts actually on the Disneyland Hotel property. They were up now kind of where the, the large parking structure is um, at Disneyland now. I forgot the name of that parking structure, but it's, uh, it's Mickey directly, and north, yeah, directly north of downtown Disney, um, you know, a field or two up from there. Uh, they had a thing there called Tennis Land. I think it was 18 courts that people could play. Not only guests of Disneyland and the Disneyland Hotel, but they also had memberships from people in the community. Um, and that was certainly another selling point or another amenity added by the hotel. Um, but by then, it was, it was a world-class, uh, world-known, renowned hotel destination, resort destination, you know, with over a thousand rooms and gourmet uh, eating and, and, and shopping and restaurants and you know it was a it was a world in and of itself at that point uh, you know just a destination uh, even more so than it, than it had been with you know just really branching out. Well, and there was some during this era. There were some of my favorite features of the hotel. There were the pedal boats and the World of Water Marina that had been constructed, and then. I love the dancing waters. It was sort of the precursor yes. to World of Color, you know, yep. and and then the Cove, which was again a, a lot of the features they added remind me so much of Disney World. The Cove, which was a pool themed to a tropical lagoon with a white sand beach, and then there was that. Then there was like a little tidal pool that I think mm -hmm. was for children. I mean, this again, it's almost like they were getting ready for Disney World. Your, uh, and their resorts with, with there were, in the There 70s. were, yeah, a lot of precursors to Disney World. Um, and, and not only that, but precursors to things that would come later um, at Disneyland, like you said, the World of Color. Uh, you know, I've only been to Disney World twice, but I did see that show that's at the Lagoon at Epcot. Um, oh, Illuminations. And, yeah. And, and I know that I haven't directly read or researched that that was inspired by Dancing Waters nor uh, World of Color, but you can't help but think that they got these ideas that they stemmed from those. Dancing Waters was a, a, a show that they would put on. It had its own little kind of pool or, or uh, water area where they would have lights and sound and music um, at the hotel uh, or at the uh, uh, west uh southwest corner of the hotel at that time next to the bonita tower and they put on several shows a night that i think were 20 or 25 minutes long but it was like a, a water themed light fantastic um that was just amazing and everybody loved and it was free you know people could go there and watch it three four five times a night um and it was really enjoyable it drew large crowds um, they had patriotic music um, they had a choreographer um, and it was, it was just, if you can imagine the early version of the world of color, that's what that was there at the hotel. Um, and it was certainly very popular. Um, you mentioned the cove that was designed by an artist, um, a guy named Greg LaChapelle, and he designed that to, to look like a tidal pool uh, around there where they had impressions of, like, starfish, and kids could walk, you know, through warm water that um, was only up to like the middle of their shins and, 
and they could get a feel that they were at the seashore. Um, another thing that they had there was they had trout fishing. They had uh, a part of it that was stocked with trout where you could go fishing. Um, and they had the same set of problems that Disneyland had. They would find fish in newspaper all over the property that was, you know, two or three days old. And so they didn't have that for too long. Yeah, they didn't um, learn huh, from the early days of Disneyland yeah, there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But they had the pedal boats, which when they first started were free. Um, and then they raised it to 50 cents. And you could get your exercise in and pedal all around the marina. Um, they also had an exhibit of um, ships and boats that um, were available for sale. Um, from a, a distributor or a, or a local uh, ship builder and, and things to the area, you could go see you know demos of uh, uh, luxury boats and sailboats, um, and then they had uh, a Piper aircraft that was moored there at the station. That's an interesting story because they closed Cerritos Boulevard to land that plane one day, and then they ferried it into the uh, the hotel. Um, it was all part of the theme of recreation, um, you know, the boating, uh, the swimming, um, the, the flying and things uh, that, that people could do. Jack wanted people to have a full range of, of activities and, and hobbies that people could look at and see if they were interested in, in getting into. Um, and the White Sand Beach and the, 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 the other pool over there, the coal pool that was over there, uh, was a smaller pool. Um, if the other pool was too crowded. Um, so just, you know, again, tons of activities, and they were opening new restaurants. Uh, they opened, uh, uh, you know, seafood restaurants, real high-end seafood restaurants. Um, they own, opened a craft shop with uh, glass structures that you could buy. Um, and then later on in the late 70s, early 80s, they had Atari Adventure where they had video games. Um, you actually walked downstairs, so you were essentially underwater because you were in the marina in a building that sunk down in below the water, and they had 80 or 90 video games in there that you could play. That was right when video games were first taking hold, and uh, kids were, you know, falling in love with those. So uh, he always had ideas to keep people entertained and, and you know, for, for any type of crowd, uh, adults, kids, young kids, older kids, um, it was just a, a real important that everybody had something to do or something for fun to do to Jack Rather. Yeah. Now, in the 1980s, you know, Disneyland and the hotel celebrated their 25th anniversary. Disneyland um, called it the family reunion. And so, again, there was a lot of expansion at the Disneyland Hotel as well. Can you tell us um, what went on there in the 80s? Uh, the late 70s, early 80s, they added uh, uh, Water Wonderland. They added the, uh, the, uh, falls, uh, the, the falls at the Bonita Tower. They had the Horseshoe Falls uh, and the water exhibits down there in the, in the last tower that they built. Um, they added um, uh, a raceway for um, kind of like RC cars. Um, they added where you could steer your own uh, portable tugboats. Um, they added the Queen Mary feature with the model of the Queen Mary. Um, but this was, this was kind of challenging times for Rather because the economy had kind of gone bad um, and, you know, people, the occupancy rates were down. Plus, uh, Jack Rather had developed uh, cancer for the first time in late 1977 um, and had to develop or devote a lot of attention to getting treatments for that. Um, and so... Uh, there were kind of some, some lean times there at the hotel, mainly due to that and the economy, but they pressed on as best as they could so that they could, uh, you know, keep offering uh, unique things for people to do and to have fun um, at the hotel. Well, there were some things, some real classic um, places that opened up, well, like the wedding gazebo with the Rose Garden, but a place that is much beloved was when the coffee house became the Monorail Cafe, and mm -hmm. I mean, because people loved the Monorail Cafe. That's probably the thing they missed the most out of yeah. the, out of the yeah. old hotel. <laughs> yeah. the, so. uh, the Rose Garden and gazebo where they had the weddings was added in the early 80s. They actually removed one of the... Uh, 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 two-story garden structures to build the, the rose garden and gazebo where people could have 
their wedding ceremonies, or they could have themed parties. Businesses would have themed Polynesian parties in there and things. Um, um, and that was uh, around 1980-81 that they did that. Um, and in 1986, the the coffee shop that had been open since you know really early on in the hotel's history became the Monorail Cafe. A lot of people don't know that. Um, there's actually pins that they sell that say Monorail Cafe 1955 to 1999, end of an era. Well, that's impossible because the Monorail wasn't even there in 1955, so uh, that's a bit misleading. It didn't open until 1986. It stayed there a little under 13 years, but it was a it was probably the thing that I get asked about the most or written about or questioned about at the hotel. People remember that, along with the mini golf course, the most at the hotel because they loved that place. Um, what was interesting about that place was there were waitresses in there that had worked there for 20, 25 years when it was the, uh, the coffee shop. Um, so, you know, people that had been there forever, uh, even when it converted over into the Monorail Cafe. But what I liked about it personally was the decor. They had wonderful pictures in there of Walt Disney and, you know, him dedicating the monorail and murals on the walls and lots of 50s artifacts and things that were in there. And they had the most reasonable rates for food out of any restaurant at the hotel, mm -hmm. you know, because they offered sandwiches and burgers and shakes. Um, and it was just a very, very popular place for people to go so that, you know, again, if they were on a budget or if they just wanted to grab a a quick snack in, in a wonderful atmosphere. Yeah. And then at the opposite end, Granville Steakhouse opened. Mm-hmm. Too, and which is now Steakhouse 55. Yeah, that was, a, 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 what do they call it, a four diamond or whatever steakhouse, uh, named after Benita Granville, Jack's wife. And, um, you know, that was a place that uh, initially jackets and ties were required of gentlemen and, you know, uh, was upscale and you had to dress for it. You had to make reservations. Um, it was, you know, dimly lit and real nice decor, uh, you know, serving steak and fine seafood and real nice bottles of wine and champagne. And it's definitely not somewhere that you would go in casual uh, kind of like uh, resort attire. It was, it had standards that, that had to be uh, upheld, you know, to, to get in. Um, and the precursor to that um, uh, at the Disneyland Hotel was um, they had, um, oh, what was the name of it? I'm drawing a blank again, but there was another place there that was a private club for men initially, and women could go in there on Sundays or after oh, a certain... I yeah, I remember, but I can't think of what it was. It didn't have a British the name Oak, or something. The Oak, the Oak Club, yeah. the Oak Club <laughs> in the Oak Room. The Oak Room at the Disneyland Hotel. It was a real upscale place with leather upholstered seats and couches and, and a real, you know, fine menu with steaks and chops and, and a full bar. Uh, that was a kind of a precursor to Granville's. Um, and then eventually they opened that up to anybody that wanted to go. They, they, uh, it was first like a gentleman's private club. Um, and then due to pressure from people wanting to go there and changing times, they opened it up to everybody. But they still required a tie, a jacket and a tie in that restaurant, um, like Granville's. Yeah. And then for a more rowdy atmosphere, there was Sergeant Preston's that opened. Yes. Yeah, that, yes. Was, that was a fun place. <laughs> yeah. That was named after the, the, uh, the movie property or the uh, television property that Jack Rather owned in the 50 Sergeant Preston's of the Yukon. Yeah, I remember um, that. Yeah, and that was certainly a fun place. They had sing-alongs, and they had a stage show. Um, they had animated characters in there, Clem. They had Yukon Clem, who was like a big bear. Um, they had Sergeant Preston, who was the hero, and then they had the guy that was the villain, and then the damsel in distress. Um, and they had a lot of audience participation. Um, and it was just kind of a, a rowdy stage show review, uh, you know, that they tended to follow a script, but they, they left a lot of room for ad-libbing and things as guests came in. You know, they would meet people from different places and then talk about the places they were at in fun ways and, and stuff, and people certainly liked that. Yeah. That became so, uh, Neon Cactus in the 90s. Yeah. Uh, it was sort of a combination. 
Yeah, sort of of Walt Disney World's um, Hoop de Doo Review and Adventurer Club. Mm-hmm. It, it was that was more of a, a like a it first started off as a because Western music and and line dancing things were in vogue at that time, and so that's what they opened that with. And they got a lot of complaints. They got a lot of people that wrote in and said, "Bring back Sergeant Preston's. We really enjoyed that show." Um, but it was too late because they had spent three or four months remodeling and, you know, and, and they weren't about to, to switch over. Plus, that's when Disney owned it. After 1989, Disney owned it um, and uh, rather was no longer involved. Mm-hmm. Well, now let's talk a little about that. In 1984 was a rough year. Um, Jack Rather passed away. The Disney company was fending off two hostile takeover attempts. Um and then Ron Miller, Walt Disney's son-in-law, was removed as CEO, and he was replaced by Michael Eisner. And then Walt Disney Management made it a goal to acquire the Disneyland Hotel. And you know, some of the stories are that the, the, the Disney company really played hardball with trying to get the Disneyland Hotel. What are some of those stories? Well, Jack Rather got cancer again in 1981. Um, he had melanoma, some um, exposure to the sun, um, and he battled it again starting in 1981. It was the the uh, cancer that would eventually, in 1984, take his life. Um, he had actually, uh, and, and then he was in real aggressive uh, treatments for the cancer. They had a thing called interferon that they were using as well as chemotherapy. Right. Um, and for a while, it was it was working and things were going well, but then it just started progressing and it got gradually worse. Well, in 1984, um, I think that's right around the time Michael Eisner became uh, CEO at Disney, um, he entered negotiations in with Jack Rather to buy the hotel. This was, I think, around May, uh, April, May, June time frame in 1984. Again, Jack's cancer was now progressing um, and he had started the initial talks with Michael Eisner. And Jack was certainly more equipped to handle himself in business discussions and things because he had been doing it for a number of years. Well, in 1980, his son Christopher had gotten his Ph.D. Um, uh, from the University of Texas, and he um, took over as CEO of the company after Jack passed away in November of 1984, but he did not have a business background, but the negotiations had broken off because obviously Jack passed away, and so the negotiations had broken off, and Eisner gave rather a time to kind of regroup and, and reassemble because they knew they had lost their chairman and CEO. Um, Christopher took over, but he was not equipped to run a business, but he had no choice because of his last name. His brother, um, who was being prepped to run the company, had committed suicide in the late 70s. Um, that's a whole other story that I'd, I'd rather not get into, but uh, he was the one that they were gearing to take over the company. Um, but there were some family difficulties and problems, and he committed suicide. So Christopher had to take over the company um, in December of 1984, shortly after Jack passed away. And Michael Eisner uh, just looked at that as his opportunity you know, to because he knew that Chris would be naive and in business things, and Chris admitted, you know, that he didn't know what he was doing, um, that he was, you know, fresh in this, and there were all kinds of problems that he inherited. Uh, they had over-leveraged themselves with loans for new buildings. They had built a new convention center in 1983. Um, they got a terrible rate on their loan. It was like 24%. Um, and so there were all kinds of problems that Chris had to deal with, and Eisner kind of backed off because he saw all of the problems that they were having. Um, and then he resumed the talks in about late 1986, 1987 with Bonita and Chris rather. Um, and then it was, and then like you said, there were a couple of hostile takeovers that were in place, people that were lining up to get the Disneyland hotel. And, you know, they would have taken over the, the, uh, the, uh, 99 year lease that Jack had signed calling at the Disneyland Hotel, and they could have put, you know, slot machines or whatever they wanted in there, and it would have still been associated with Disneyland. And and Eisner was petrified that they were going to do something that just didn't live up to Disney standards, so he, too, entered into the negotiations, and they eventually worked out a deal between uh, Industrial Equity of uh, uh, New Zealand and Disney 
Um, and they they bought the uh, Disneyland Hotel, and the deal was consummated in uh, January of 1989. Um, Bonita Granville had passed away in 1988, but she oversaw the, the final dealings and everything that they had and kind of helped Chris out at that point. They reached a stage where it was favorable for Rather. The board members of uh, Rather agreed upon the sale, and Disney took over the hotel in January of 1989. Yeah, I know there's an infamous story that um, that the the Rather Company was threatened with the monorail lease agreement um, if yes. they and so if they didn't um, purchase if they didn't allow the purchase of the Disneyland Hotel, so. they were going to charge Rather. I think it was ten thousand dollars a day uh, maintenance fees to run the monorail over to the Disneyland Hotel. Uh, I, I'm not even sure they were charging them anything. I think that they had to share in some of the upkeep of the, the monorail, you know, but it was certainly not $10,000 a day. And they said, okay, well, you know, if Rather doesn't want to sell, we'll, you know, kind of make things tough for them. And that was one of the things that was mentioned. Um, they were also putting pressure on them because, um, again, Rather was in financial trouble in the early 80s, and they weren't keeping the hotel up as well as they used to. For instance, there were, you know, weeds in the gardens and, and the hotel needed painting and new carpeting and things, and they weren't updating as much as they did in previous years. So Eisner was, uh, you know, kind of putting pressure on them to do that, and they didn't have the funds to do it. So a lot of people were complaining, you know, that the, the rooms were 70 and $80 a night, yet they weren't worth it because they needed paint and the amenities were, were you know, were bad and and so it was really hard times uh, for Chris Rather and everything. It's it's a period in his life that he doesn't even really like to talk about to this day because it was so difficult on him the stress and everything that he was under. Yeah, and then, and then eleven years after the Walt Disney Company purchased the hotel, guests started to see the end of the Rather history as the Disney Company started to demolish. Uh, rem, you know the original hotel. So, so is is anything left of the original hotel today? Absolutely nothing. There is no structure still standing from the original hotel. The oldest building on the grounds now is from 1961, 1962, and it is the north side of the. I forgot what you called it, but it was the Sierra Tower. What is it now? The uh, Oh, it's the Adventure, um, Adventure Tower. Adventure Tower. So half of the Adventure Tower is the oldest structure on there. 1961, it started building. In 1962, it opened. That's the oldest building now on the property. Um, they removed everything. They removed all of the restaurants, the old rooms, the trees. Supposedly... There was one orange tree still on the property from 19, well, probably the 1930s and 1940s, um, but I was told that that was no longer there a couple of years ago. I never saw it. I never saw that tree, and um, I looked all over for it, and I never never saw an orange tree on the property, but they said it was there, uh, but I couldn't find it. But there's absolutely nothing left. That's too bad. Too bad there's not something. Yeah. Even the names are gone. <laughs> yeah, I, I always thought that they could leave up one garden structure um, and make it a 50s theme and let people who maybe spent their honeymoons there or had childhood memories there rent those rooms and theme them from the 50s. Um, and uh, I still hold out hope that someday they will do that because they are starting to look back at the hotel's history and, and you know, uh, some things that are themed there with the old uh, lettering of the words Disneyland Hotel, they're starting to go back to using that. Um, and they're embracing the hotel's mid-century design and history, um, mainly because they didn't really want to tear the tower buildings down and start all over again. So they decided that they would embrace what they had and just uh, celebrate its architectural design and things as being, you know, from the 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. So now, now your first book covered the history of the Disneyland Hotel from 1954 through 1988. Your second book covers the Disneyland Hotel history from 1954 to 59. So now are you working on another book on the Disneyland Hotel? 
Yes, I am. And first of all, I'll explain um, why I did, devoted one just to 1954 to 1959. Um, I was driving home one night, and uh, my cell phone rang. And this was during the time where you could talk on your cell phone in your car, uh, so I didn't do anything illegal. And it was uh, Chris Rather, and he told me, he said, Hey, Don, I've got this storage vault in Hollywood, and I haven't been there in probably 35 or 40 years, and I bet you there are all kinds of business-related artifacts that are in there. And so um, he said, you know, would you like to go have a look? And I said, is this a trick question? Of course, you know, I want to go have a look. Uh, so my wife and I made arrangements to go down to Los Angeles. I live in the Bay Area, about three or 400 miles from Los Angeles. We made arrangements to fly down that morning, real early that morning, and we were going to stay all day, uh, come back on the latest flight that we could. Um, but we were going to go into the vault and see what was in there. It's a, it's a temperature-controlled, humidity-controlled storage vault that uh, we have a lot of clients that store their films and artifacts and things in there because it's the, the uh, atmosphere for it is, is perfect for the preservation of artifacts. Um, but we went in there, um, and it wasn't that big of a, of a storage vault. Um, you know, it was uh, three or four shelves high and about, oh, maybe 10 feet deep and about five and a half, six feet across. But, um, and I made the remark or the, the, the statement to my wife when we were flying down. I said, if I find 10 pictures in this vault, that I haven't seen before. This will be a successful trip. Um, I scanned my 1,200th picture uh, about two months ago from the vault. So there was 1,200 pictures that I hadn't seen before. Wow. Just, a, just amazing pictures, you know, from the groundbreaking, from opening day, uh, 40 new pictures with Walt Disney in them that nobody had ever seen before. Um, and if that weren't enough, I found films. Jack Rather loved to film. He had a 16-millimeter color film camera. Um, and one of the films that I found actually was Disneyland's opening day um, in color, which uh, I'm hoping to share at the next D23 Expo in 2015. Um, and it features Walt Disney delivering his dedication speech. Um, I showed that uh, short clip at the last Expo, um, but this time it'll get a lot more exposure because it'll be in a more of a main stage and, and hopefully a much bigger audience that will be able to appreciate it and see it. Um, but with all of these pictures, which were primarily from the 50s um, and films, which were you know primarily from the very first years of the hotel, I had enough to go way in depth on the 50s. Um, some people have commented that I've gone too much in depth you know, that they really didn't need to know that, you know, the name of the people that supplied the toilets to the hotel or things like that. <laughs> um, but I had the material to, to really uh, cover the 50s in depth with all kinds of new facts, figures, statistics, you know, costs, dates. Whereas before, I would say in June of 1955, I would now be able to say on June 2nd at 10.30 in the morning in 1955, you know, which was important to me because it it helped to clearly tell this, the early story of the Disneyland Hotel. There were also many artifacts, pictures, and things and films from the 60s, which is my next project. I'm working on a third book, which will cover the 1960s. I may not be able to do it in one book. I may have to split that up from 1960 to 1964 and 1965 to 1969 simply because I have too much material on the 60s. Again, we spoke earlier about the dynamics of the 60s in the hotel in Disneyland. I have a ton of material on the 60s, um, and I need to keep the books kind of in the same format and the same amount of pages, so it'll probably be two books on the 60s um, um, that I'm going to come out with. And they I'm will be, looking. at least the first one will be out by the time of uh, Expo uh, 2015, D23 Expo. That's great. Well, I will definitely stand in line for that book. <laughs> now, how can our listeners learn more about the Disneyland Hotel and purchase your books? I have a website. It's uh, www.magicalhotel.com. I also have a blog, and I try to update that as much as I can. 
It's www.magicalhotel.blogspot.com. Um, and in that blog, I post all kinds of uh, neat artifacts, pictures, facts, and figures um, in there. Uh, when I, For instance, when I went to the vault and I found those, I started posting a lot of the pictures I found in there. Um, and I try to update that with, with uh, when I get new information on, uh, on things. Um, and there's some really neat stories and, and articles in there. Um, also with my visits with the people from the hotel, with uh, Al Nicholson, whom I mentioned earlier. Um, I'm also in contact with a couple of people that were executives in the late 70s and early 80s who've also supplied me with artifacts and photographs and documents. Um, and it's just been a wonderful experience because it just keeps growing. And I'm thrilled when I meet people that, you know, tell me they were at the hotel for 10 years and can I you know, take a look at my photographs. And it's just, it's always something new and uh, I learn something new all the time on the hotel and it's just uh it's just been a, a labor of love and a passion and i've truly enjoyed it that's great and it's wonderful because i feel like i've been to the hotel now since opening day by reading your books so for folks interested in the history of disneyland and design hotel um these are books you have to have in your collection or to give as a gift to that special disney fan in your life um when ordering the books on his website you can ask don to sign the books or write a personal note and I got the thinking if you're planning a trip for your loved one or a family to Disneyland, a great way to announce the trip would be to purchase these books from Don's website and then ask him to write a personal note, maybe about the trip or something in each one and sort of give it to your family or loved one to say, hey, guess where we're going and guess where we're staying. So, um, so like I said, we'll have a link to Don's website and his blog in our show notes. So, um, so Don, what do you think are in the future plans for the Disneyland Hotel? Well, there's one more thing I'd like to add related to before. <laughs> we got our first order from Disney um, about three weeks ago. So now they will also start carrying the book at the resort. Oh, uh, great. Books at the resort. Right now they're only going to put it at what's called the Small World Sundry Shop at the Disneyland Hotel, and mm -hmm. it's kind of in a test run to see how well it does. So I'd like to encourage you to go to the Small World Sundry Shop at the Disneyland Hotel, and you don't necessarily have to buy it, but it would be great if you did, but at least ask about it so that it generates some buzz uh, because that's our first real order with Disney, and um, again, it's in the test run to see how well it does. Right. It would be wonderful if a lot of people talked about it and, and they reported back, hey, we're getting a lot of buzz on this book, you know. Well, that's wonderful. So, yeah, and that's in the Fantasy Tower. So, okay. So now, yeah, so what? Do you, the, that's the Marina Tower to me. <laughs> <laughs> so now, what do you think are in the future plans for the Disneyland Hotel? I know that um, a lot of the development that they've wanted to do, you know, they've been doing over the past few years. Um, I have some projects that I'm working on there. Um, that unfortunately I'm not allowed to disclose right now, but they do embrace the history mm -hmm. um, and they do embrace, um, uh, you know, uh, going back and letting people relive memories and things like that. I have a couple of projects that I'm working with them there. Um, I am proposing, too, that they uh, build another garden structure, two-story garden structure, uh, so that people can, you know, remember their trips back there when they're on their honeymoons or, or, or whatever. Um, and I'm, you know, they're listening to me, and there is a spot for them to build it. Um, I've also proposed walking tours, historical walking tours, which they do now, um, but it doesn't really go in depth, um, you know, as to the history, because I can take people right to the spot where they first broke ground. Um, and I know a lot more of the history of certain buildings and things like that and the, the design elements behind it, and the history behind that building. Um, I'd like them to go more in-depth into that. Um, but they just opened the uh, the Blue Sky Suite upstairs in the uh, Marina Tower, which, again, I think you said is the Fantasy Tower. Um, and that's for corporations to use as kind of like a meeting place when they have a, 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 a they want, you know, to entertain clients or guests 
Um, it's up where the presidential suite used to be in that tower, and they've completely rethemed and redesigned that. They gave us a tour. That's really neat. Um, but uh, there's some stuff that, that are in the works. Um, and I also have an individual project that I've been working on for two and a half years, and that's to get Jack and Benita Rather their very own window on Main Street. Um, and I'm making some progress. Um, I'm making some progress on that. Um, and I should find out fairly shortly whether uh, my, my hopes will come true with regards to that. Um, and something that's very special and very important to me on that is Jack's oldest daughter, Molly, rather, um, is battling cancer right now. And she has it pretty bad. It's stage four. And um, she's uh, not doing too well. And I hope that they announce this, that uh, they get their own window while she's still with us so that she can have another happy moment in her life. I know that when I nominated them um, in 2011, actually it was in 2009 that I proposed to nominate them as Disney legends, both her and Chris and their other sister, Linda, they were thrilled when they uh, got the letters from uh, Robert Iger saying that they were named Disney legends, Jack and Bonita. Um, and that was a, a project that I had done, worked on for two years, just constant letter writing and phone calls and emails. And they finally did it in 2011. They were named Disney Legends. So hopefully you'll be hearing soon. That would that be great. Their own, their own window on Main Street. That would be wonderful. Uh, I think they're, yeah, I think they're richly deserving of. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So now if you could, knowing what you know now, if you could go back and spend a weekend in any era of the Disneyland Hotel, when would it be? Oh, that's a great question. I think I would go back to August, late August of 1956, because something that I didn't mention through our, um, our previous conversations was the official grand opening of the hotel was August uh, 25th, 1956. It did open on October 5th, 1955, but they opened everything in uh, August of 1956, all the restaurants, the new rooms, um, the administration wing, um, it would officially open in August of 1956. I would probably go back to that week. Um, I would attend that ceremony. Of course, I was invited or I could sneak my way in. And I would just walk around and take as many pictures as I could of the original, original Disneyland Hotel. Go into every shop, um, you know, look at every possible thing that was there, um, and then I wouldn't mind going into Disneyland at that time, too, and taking pictures of everything in there because that were the, those were the magic times for me there, uh, you know, when, when it was so fresh and so new and, and uh, just exciting to me, you know, to have been able to see it. Always wanted to go up to the, uh, the moon line of the TWA rocket and see that in person. Um, that would be a dream of mine to go back and see that rocket just standing there. Um, that's one of the things I liked most about Disneyland. So August of 1956 is when I'd go back to. Great. Well, we'll, we'll go back to it in your books. <laughs> well, yeah. Don, Don, thank you for joining us on the Dis Unplugged and sharing the story of that magical hotel in the middle of an orange grove with us. And it, that, that's my pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. You're welcome. And, and that concludes this segment of the Diz Unplugged. Please listen to our other segments this week. Thank you for listening and be magical. 